0: RPC Radio Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August, we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast, we are releasing two episodes a week, so eight episodes in total, in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, Welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This seventh meditation is called Towards a Philosophy of Insurance, and in it I pull together some of the themes from the first six meditations and consider whether it is possible to create a philosophy of insurance, a framework for understanding why insurance is such a potent force in society. And as we examine that, we will discover that insurance acts as a mirror to our own insecurities and aspirations, and that By developing a philosophy of insurance, we learn about humanity's place, not just within space, but within time. It is a fascinating story, and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. Five words beginning with F. We're coming towards the end of these eight meditations. I hope you've enjoyed them and I hope they have caused you to pause and, well, meditate on this amazing thing that we call insurance. So far, I have adopted a roughly chronological approach, starting 300,000 years ago with the evolution of Homo sapiens and ending with an overview of the world of insurance in 2023. But this has not been a mere story of insurance, even less a history of insurance. Yes, it has recited a few facts, but... I have aimed for something more than that. In each meditation, I have used the events of a period in history to highlight a particular characteristic of insurance. In meditation one, it was the fact that insurance, in the form of bottomary, was created in response to fear, and that fear was a new one for humanity. It was a fear of financial loss. In meditation two, I argued that insurance is an irreligious faith, When we purchase insurance, we are purchasing a promise. It is a faith transaction. In Meditation 3, we saw how insurance relies upon the beneficial selfishness of strangers. We don't buy insurance for altruistic reasons, yet, in so doing, we benefit people that we will never meet. In Meditation 4, I argued that insurance is the unmoved mover. By manipulating the human mind and therefore human actions, insurance has the capacity to alter human history. In Meditation 5, called Understanding Life Forwards, we learned that through data and maths, insurance transforms unknowable uncertainty into knowable risk. And in Meditation 6, I explained how, in the last 175 years, insurance has transformed from being a luxury product for the few into something that is for everyone, everywhere, all at once. But now I have run out of chronology and I need to start drawing the threads together. And that is what I'll do in these last two meditations. In the final meditation, I will look at the future of insurance, make some predictions and consider how insurance might respond to the many challenges that our world faces. But in this meditation, I want to step back and consider whether there is a philosophy of insurance and if so, what it might look like. In order to provide some structure to this discussion, I'm going to base it around five words, all of which begin with the letter F. And no, it doesn't include that F word. Although actually, there is a sixth F word, but we'll start with the first five, which are fragility, fear, future, faith and freedom. Three of these words, fear, future and faith, have already played a part to a greater or lesser degree in our discussion so far. Indeed, I've already used two of them in this episode. But to them, I have added fragility and freedom. And the sixth word is... Well, actually, no. Let's just stick to the first five for the moment. So, why these five words? Well, we need insurance because of our fragility. And it is our fragility that provokes our fear. And our fear is of the future. And to reimagine our future, we need faith. And with faith, we can perhaps find freedom. And we obtain that freedom in insurance. These five words, therefore, provide overlapping and mutually dependent concepts that form the foundation of my philosophy of insurance. In my opinion, these five words and the way in which they interact get to the essence of insurance. So let's start with Fragility. Chapter 2. Fragility. Our context for insurance. In Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia, one of the characters, Thomasina Coverley, a 13-year-old scientific genius, makes the following observation to her tutor, Septimus Hodge. When you stir your rice pudding, Septimus, the spoonful of jam spreads itself round, making red trails like the picture of a meteor in my astronomical atlas. But if you stir backwards, the jam will not come together again. Indeed, the pudding does not notice and continues to turn pink just as before. Do you think this is odd? Thomasina's jam is an example of entropy. It is an example of how an ordered world becomes a disordered one. Now, entropy has a scientific meaning and a general meaning. The scientific meaning is linked to thermodynamics, which is the study of the relations between heat, work, temperature and energy. In particular, it is related to the second law of thermodynamics, which says, amongst other things, that heat flows from a warmer body to a colder body. It is the second law of thermodynamics that explains why ice melts at room temperature and why boiling water cools down. The heat flows from the warmer body to the colder body, causing the cold body to warm up and the warm body to cool down until both bodies achieve the same temperature. Hence, ice melts and hot water cools. The physicist Arthur Reddington described the second law in 1928 as holding the supreme position amongst the laws of nature. This is because it does much more than explain why ice melts. It also predicts how the universe will end. Because in exactly the same way that a mug of coffee cools down, so eventually the whole universe will cool to a single temperature. So think on that the next time you're waiting for a hot drink to become drinkable. In a very simplified way, you are watching the heat death of the universe. Anyway. The second law of thermodynamics also, possibly, explains the existence of time. At room temperature, an ice cube will spontaneously melt, but water will not spontaneously form itself into an ice cube. With the second law, there is only one direction, and that direction is disorder. The current universe, in which atoms are ordered into stars, planets and bumblebees, will become a disordered jumble. Of mixed up atoms, like Tomasina's jam mixing into the rice pudding and turning it pink. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that this disorder, this entropy, is constantly increasing, which means that at the heart of the universe is fragility. And that very roughly is the scientific definition of entropy. Now, onto the general meaning of entropy, which is linked to the scientific meaning and is this everything falls apart. Everything is fragile. Everything tends towards disorder. I regret to inform you that Murphy's law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, is not just a jokey statement. It is the second law of thermodynamics. It is a working definition of entropy. And this is because there are far more ways for things to go wrong than for them to go right. A Rubik's cube has one correct solution and 43 quintillion wrong ones. Entropy is why my study is always a mess. There are only a limited number of ways in which the study can be tidy, but an infinite number of ways for it to be untidy. Wrongness is more natural than rightness. And the next observation is that if something is fragile, it will eventually break, because in the long term, entropy always wins. You see that vase on the mantelpiece? At some point in time, it will be broken. It may not be today, or tomorrow, or even within the next thousand years, but it will happen eventually. Because to break takes a second. To remain whole requires an eternity. So how do we, humans, respond to this fragility? Well, the good news is that we can resist entropy, albeit temporarily, By using energy. We use a kettle to boil water. We use a freezer to freeze it. To resist entropy in our own bodies, we eat food and go to the gym. To resist entropy in a relationship, we spend time together, sharing, laughing and crying. To resist entropy in a career, we go on training courses and learn new skills. And we've been remarkably successful at holding back the incoming tide of entropy. In many respects, our lives are more secure now than ever before. As Stephen Pinker argues in his book, Enlightenment Now, on almost every criterion we have seen progress over the last 200 years. The simplest example of this is the improvement in life expectancy. In 1900, average life expectancy across the globe was around 32. By 1950, it was 48. And now, it is 73. We have achieved this progress with a lot of effort and a lot of energy. Most of it, by the by, from fossil fuels. But entropy cannot be resisted forever. As the author and former trader Nassim Nicholas Taleb says in his book Anti-Fragility, we have been fragilizing the economy, our health, political life, education almost everything, by suppressing randomness and volatility. The classic example of this is forest fire. By suppressing regular small fires, we allow leaf litter to build up, which means that, when there is a fire, it is much worse. As such, in the modern world, when things go wrong, they increasingly go badly wrong. For example, the globalised nature of our banking system is more fragile than a system of smaller national banks. It means that a failure of one bank can lead to a cascade of failures, as we discovered in 2007 and 2008. We have created a complex world. And a complex world is inherently more fragile because, as Peter Zweifel and Roland Eisen say in their thrillingly entitled book Insurance Economics, the more sophisticated a technology the narrower the range of tolerable error. An interconnected world creates interconnected problems. Of course, we all experienced this firsthand with the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're seeing it with the effect of the burning of fossil fuels on the global environment. And who knows, maybe we will see it at some point with a truly global cyber attack. Despite our best efforts, fragility remains at the heart of the universe. As Steven Pinker says, Not only does the universe not care about our desires, but in the natural course of events it appears to thwart them, because there are so many more ways for things to go wrong than for them to go right. Houses burn down, ships sink, battles are lost for the want of a horseshoe nail. Hmm, okay, ships sink, eh? Houses burn down. It does not take a genius to see where I'm headed with this. For houses that burn down, we have insurance. For ships that sink, we have insurance. Insurance is, therefore, part of humanity's perpetual fight against entropy. It is one means by which we attempt to bring order to disorder. If there was no entropy, no fragility, there would be no need for insurance. Fragility is, therefore, our context for insurance. Chapter 3 Fear – Our Motivation for Insurance If I am in the middle of a large field, perhaps searching for butterflies or meditating upon the wonders of insurance, when suddenly I hear and then see a bull, a snorting bull rampaging towards me, I will experience visceral fear. I face an immediate threat to life and limb. My heart will beat faster. Blood will pump to my legs and adrenaline will flood my body. That is fear. But other types of fear are, of course, available. The fear of spiders, for example. Arachnophobia is a common fear, but in the UK at least, it is completely irrational. No spider here has the ability to do as much harm. And in fact, they do a lot of good by keeping our population of flying insects under control. But at least spiders are something that we will experience in our daily lives. It has been estimated that the average house is home to 100 to 200 spiders, and in an acre of meadow, there may be between 1.5 and 2.5 million spiders. So, whilst arachnophobia may not be rational, it is at least rooted in our everyday experience. But Many of our fears relate to things that we will never experience. In 2005, Gallup surveyed about 1,000 American teenagers, asking them what they most feared. The list of their top 10 answers included war and terrorism. Now, this was at the time of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, so these fears can perhaps be explained, but in reality the prospect of a teenager in Wichita, Kansas being personally harmed by war or terrorism was close to non-existent. But at least war and terrorism are things that tangibly exist, albeit in all probability, somewhere else. However, many of our fears are fears of the imagination. In eighth place on that Gallup poll was the fear of being alone. In fourth, a fear of failure, and in ninth place, the most nebulous of all, a fear of the future. Throughout the list, there was a sense of indefinable existential dread, the sense that tomorrow will always bring unanticipated horrors. The Greek philosopher Epictetus wrote, What disturbs and alarms man are not the things, but his opinions and fancies about the things. Our fears so often exist inside our heads rather than in the real world. Lars spenson in his book A Philosophy of Fear talks about a fear that manifests itself as a feeling of uncertainty, a feeling that there are possible dangers that may strike without warning and that the world is an insecure place. It is a fear as a way of looking at the world where one's own vulnerability is considered above all. In other words, our fears are often a product of our internalised sense of fragility. The novelist Haruki Murakami expresses this far more beautifully. What seems threatening, he says, is just the echo of the fear in my own heart. The great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said, All fear comes from our loving something. So what is it that we love? Well, there is a lot of evidence that we love what we have and we therefore fear losing what we have. In our minds, to lose something is far worse than to gain an equivalent something. In his book Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman provides a wonderful example of this from the sport of golf. In golf, the aim is to get the ball into the hole in as few shots as possible. For each hole, there is a par score, which is the number of shots that a golfer is expected to take. If that number is four, then a golfer gains a shot if they do it in three, and they lose a shot if they do it in five. The final shot is usually a relatively short one, from a few inches to a few metres, And this is called a putt. The researchers analysed 2.5 million putts by professional golfers, and they discovered that a golfer was 3.6% more successful with an identical putt if it was for a par four rather than for a three. In other words, even for these professional, highly competitive, highly skilled golfers, the fear of losing a shot was more powerful. the desire to gain a shot. 3.6% more powerful, to be precise. So humans, or at least golfers and those who do psychological experiments, are fundamentally loss-averse. We fear loss. We fear losing what we have, whether that is our health, our wealth, our status, our friends, or our sense of control. And that which we fear, we ensure, or at least We try to insure. Insurance is, therefore, a symptom of our insecurity, the awareness of our own fragility. It is an outward expression of our inner fear of losing that which we have. Fear is our motivation for insurance. Chapter 4. Future. Our reason for insurance. Let's return for a moment to that Gallup poll of American teenagers. I mentioned that in ninth place in their list of fears was the fear of the future. Now, on one level, this is a statement of the obvious because, as Lars Venson says, the core of all fear is the assumption of a negative future situation. That is not what those teenagers meant. They had a fear that the future itself was dangerous, that it was a place of loss. Their fear was an existential fear. And we experience this fear because the future is, by definition, unknowable, unreachable, unseeable. And this is because we, in contrast, are irredeemably creatures Of the present, constrained to live in the instant, second by second. My memories of the past are memories that I experience in the present. In a decade's time, I will experience those same memories differently because I will be different. Indeed, I may no longer remember them at all, but even if I do retain a memory, it will carry a different meaning for me because I will have changed. And of course, My hopes and fears for the future are hopes and fears that I experience in the immediate, in the here and now. When I'm 80, my hopes and fears will be very different from the hopes and fears that I experience now. Saint Augustine of Hippo, a 4th century theologian who lived in North Africa, expressed this thought beautifully. Perhaps it would be accurate to say there are three times, a present of things past, a present present of things present, a present of things to come. We are creatures of the moment. And just like Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, we are daily confronted by the ghost of our past, the ghost of our present, and the ghost of our future. And, just as with Scrooge, it is the ghost of our future that we most dread. For in the very air through which this spirit moved it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. So it turns out those American teenagers were correct. We fear the future. We fear that the future will rob us of our present hopes and dreams. We fear that at some point in the indefilable future, we will experience loss. And the greater our expectations for the future, the greater our fears, because we have more to lose. Our natural loss aversion means that the more we have, the more we fear. As Svensson says, we live such secure lives that we can worry about innumerable dangers that have practically no chance of making an impact on our lives. Our modern fears, he argues, are a byproduct of luxury. We have much, so we fear much. As we accumulate more, we become more aware of what we can lose. Paradoxically, we become more aware of our fragility. So, as we live in the present, we have this nagging fear that something may or may not happen in the future, something that will rob us of that which we currently have or which we hope to have. And where possible, we look to insurance as a means of hedging against our fear of that future event, because insurance inhabits the shadowy lands of the unknowable future. It does not exist in the present, not really. It only exists when it is triggered, like some Cold War undercover sleeper cell. I have a motor policy, but it does not exist for this moment, because this moment consists of me saying the words this moment. I'm not even in a car. Indeed, it may be days before I next drive. My motor policy exists solely for a future. We are creatures of today, but insurance is a creature of tomorrow. Insurance is our attempt today to hold on to what we have to protect us from tomorrow's loss. Insurance tells us, don't worry, everything will be fine. If you crash your car, if your house has subsidence, if you provide negligent advice, don't worry, everything will be fine. Insurance will put it right. There, 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 never mind. By purchasing insurance, we are trying to retain the status quo. But we know, because of the second law of thermodynamics, that the status quo cannot survive. Everything falls apart. Insurance is, therefore, an existential scream into the desolate void of entropy. Insurance is our way of pretending that time cannot harm us. That, yes, things go wrong but insurance will put them right again. Insurance is our attempt to break the link between cause and effect, between the present and the future. With insurance, events can happen, but without consequences. Insurance therefore encourages us to lose our sense of living within time. Through insurance, we endeavour to avoid our future. But at the same time, insurance is itself an acknowledgement that life is ephemeral. We are fragile and entropy will always win. Ultimately, we buy insurance because we know that life is contingent, even as we try to deny that contingency. Perhaps, therefore, insurance is best seen not as an attempt to avoid the future, but instead to acknowledge the reality of the future and to absorb it. Because As humans, to live within time is to be obliged to change. As James K.A. Smith says in his book, How to Inhabit Time, For every creature, to be is to become. To exist is to change. To have and to hold is to lose and to mourn. To awake is to hope. Part of the human condition is to experience Loss. Too often we live as though all decay is disaster, but it isn't. It really isn't. It is natural. As Smith says, to dwell mortally is to achieve a way of being in the world for which not all change is loss and not all loss is tragic. Perhaps insurance is the way in which we dwell mortally, a way in which we accommodate the future and acknowledge its power. The novelist, Jorge Luis Borges, says, Time is the substance I am made of. Time is a river which sweeps me along, but I am the river. It is a tiger which destroys me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire which consumes me, but I am the fire. Perhaps insurance is the means by which we attempt to ensure that the river of time does not sweep us along, but gently carries us, that the tiger does not destroy us, but walks alongside us, and the fire does not consume us, but warms us as we sit in front of the hearth waiting for the clock to tick down as we live out our days on this earth of ours. Perhaps insurance is our way domesticating time. The future is our reason for insurance. Chapter 5. Faith. Our trust in insurance. In 1931, the German playwright Bertolt Brecht wrote a play called The Mother, in which one of the characters says... You you, you have no need to pray to God anymore when the thunderclouds stand overhead, but but you must be insured. You have no need to pray to God, but you must be insured. This quotation from Brecht contrasts a faith in God and a faith in insurance. And that is exactly the same contrast that I drew back in Meditation 2, an irreligious faith. Because a belief in God and a belief in insurance are examples of two very different ways of responding to an uncertain future. The first approach is to focus on our internal life, to learn how to accept life as it is. This is the approach adopted by many religions, but it is also the essence of the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. As Marcus Aurelius, Roman Emperor and top Stoic, said, You have power over your mind, not outside events. Which, I appreciate, isn't a great quotation, but it makes the point. Anyway, Stoicism is often presented as fatalism, and its religious equivalents as a submission to the will of God. But that isn't an accurate representation of what is going on, at least not really. These are methods of reconciling oneself to the randomness of our existence, They are ways of ensuring that our inner life is unaffected by the turbulence of our ever-changing environment. A modern version of this approach can be seen in mindfulness. So that's the first approach, to focus on our inner life. The second approach to responding to an uncertain future is to focus on the external, to control our environment and to tame the risk posed by the future through a combination of maths Mitigation, management, and let's not deny it, money. All the elements discussed in Meditation 5, Understanding Life Forwards. And this approach, focusing on controlling our environment, is the approach offered by insurance. Insurance is one method, among many, by which we convince ourselves that our lives are under control, really. That entropy may apply to others, but mm, it doesn't apply to us. Of course, These two approaches, the internal and the external, are not mutually exclusive. It is perfectly possible to be a Stoic or a believer in God and to buy insurance. Equally, it is also perfectly possible to be an atheist and not to buy insurance at all. And in reality, most of us adopt both approaches, a combination of the internal and the external as we tread along our pathway of life. But the point for this chapter is this. Belief in God and belief in insurance are two sides of the same coin, two ways of responding to the threat posed by the future. And they both involve faith. Earlier in this meditation, I mentioned Lars Svensson's book, A Philosophy of Fear. And that book ends with a discussion about how we can respond to external problems such as poverty, starvation, climate change and so on the final sentence of his whole book is as follows. What we need is faith in human ability to try and solve these problems step by step, to learn from our mistakes and to create a better world. In short, a humanistic optimism. And it seems to me that insurance is part of that humanistic optimism, part of that faith in human ability. Which is great, but philosophically speaking, as soon as you stop believing in God, you are forced to believe that life has no specific purpose beyond the simple act of passing on our genes and that existence itself is a matter of chance. This point is made by the British comedian David Baddiel in his book The God Desire, which explains why he is an atheist. It is traditional, he says, in a book like this, which is mainly bleak, to finish on an up note. After all, who wants to close a book which concludes that basically we're all going to die and there's no point to life and yes, the end? But to his credit, he doesn't end his book on an up note. He is consistent with his belief to the end, and I respect him hugely for that. According to the existentialists, though, so Jean Paul Sartre et al. Bert Camus. <laughs> oh, I like that. Et al. Albert Camus. Anyway. According to the existentialists, we should respond to the pointlessness of existence by creating our own purpose. There is no divine purpose, so we are at liberty to create our own human purpose. Now, for many, this thought creates a space for existential despair. Oh misery, oh misery, I'm wandering aimless in a purposeless world. But for many others, the belief that we can create our own purpose is immensely liberating. At last I am free to be me, unconstrained by the chains of religious tradition. Several years ago, the British charity Humanists UK, amongst others, used the following slogan on the side of a bus. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. But does the evidence bear out the claim that a humanist society worries less than a religious one? Because one way of measuring worry might be to assess how much insurance people purchase. Is it the case that non-worrying atheists purchase less insurance than worrying believers? Well, based on Swiss Re's data for 2022, the evidence is actually the exact opposite of that. The European countries who spend the most per person on insurance are generally from the secularised north. Denmark, Switzerland, Finland, and Luxembourg, whereas the lowest are mostly from the more religious south, Greece, Malta, Portugal and Spain. This pattern is not entirely consistent. Ireland buys a lot of insurance whilst being fairly religious, and Austria buys very little insurance despite being fairly secular. But the general pattern seems to be that secular countries buy more insurance than religious countries. And this general pattern is borne out if we look at the specific example of the countries at the top and bottom of the list, Denmark and Greece. Now, according to 2018 research from the Pew Research Centre, the Danes are the second least religious country in Europe, with just 8% describing themselves as highly religious, whereas the figure for the Greeks is a massive 49%. Making them the fourth most religious country in Europe. Which means that the irreligious Danes each spend the equivalent of 7,320 US dollars on insurance, which is over 14 times more than the religious Greeks who spend just 502 US dollars per person. Yeah. Interesting. Of course, Correlation is not causation, I know that, and I freely accept that there may be any number of other reasons for this observation, economic, social, cultural, or something else entirely. Although I do think there is a PhD in there for someone. Anyway, in the absence of further research, I'll take it no further than that brief observation that secular countries may buy more insurance than religious countries. But if that were true... It might help explain some of the growth of insurance in the 20th century. As we believe less in God, is it possible, just possible, that we have filled that God-shaped hole with a newfound faith, a faith in insurance? Chapter 6. Freedom. Our Hope for Insurance. So, we have now considered four of our five F-words. Fragility, fear, future, and faith. Our fifth word is freedom, which is also the second in a row that doubles as a George Michael song, which is most definitely not deliberate, so it must be my Freudian subconscious at work somehow. Anyway, I can assure you that our sixth F-word, when we get to it, is not fast love, flawless, freak, or any other song, of the George Michael oeuvre. Indeed, I'd be very surprised if George ever wrote a song, even an album filler, with our sixth F-word as a title. But we'll come to that shortly. In the meantime, freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. You got to give for what you take. Uh, Just to be clear, that was not a recording of George Michael. That was actually me. I know, uncanny. Anyway, the title of this meditation... Towards a Philosophy of Insurance, was inspired by the title of Willem Flusser's book, Towards a Philosophy of Photography, in which he provides the following definition of freedom. Freedom is the strategy of making chance and necessity subordinate to human intention. This is a great quotation, but quite what it has to do with photography is not immediately obvious. I think Flusser sees photography as a means of creating art that is defined neither by chance, so that which happens accidentally, nor by necessity, so that which happens because it has to happen. Photography is, in that sense, neither lucky nor is it mandatory. It exists solely because of human intention. But I could be completely wrong about that. Anyway, the irony of this is that his definition works well with insurance. Because Insurance also subordinates chance and necessity to human intention, and it therefore fulfills Willimpluss's definition of freedom. And insurance does this not by preventing the risk from occurring, but by dealing with the financial consequences of the risk. Back in 1849, D.R. Jakes stated that insurance does not pretend to diminish the aggregate of human misfortunes, Rather, it assumes that aggregate amount as a fixed fact. In other words, the starting point for insurance is that there is fragility and there is fear. It starts with an assumption that things will go wrong, that entropy will win. But in response to all that, insurance offers freedom. We discussed this back in Meditation 4, Unmoved Mover. And you may remember Daniel Kahneman's quotation that when people purchase insurance, they buy more than protection against an unlikely disaster. They eliminate a worry and purchase peace of mind. And this is the secret of insurance. When we pay our premiums, first and foremost, we are buying freedom from worry. We are asking insurance to protect us against fragility, to soothe our fears, and to give us faith to face the future. And all this for the price of an insurance premium. Incredible, isn't it? But there's more. Not only are we buying freedom from, we are buying freedom to. Do you remember Amigetto Pinello and Aveducto Gielmo for Meditation 3, The Beneficial Selfishness of Strangers? They were the parties to the oldest insurance contract of which we are aware, dating back 1343. Why did Guillermo want to buy insurance? Yeah, in part, it was freedom from. He wanted freedom from the financial risk of his goods being lost at sea on their way to Sicily. But perhaps even more than that, he wanted freedom too. Because his fundamental aim was not to avoid risk, but to trade. He was not buying insurance for negative reasons, but for positive ones. And in order for him to trade to his maximum level, he needed insurance. Because ultimately, insurance is permissive. It gives us, as individuals, the freedom to own or rent a house, to drive, to travel, to obtain medical help, and ultimately, to die in the knowledge that our loved ones will be looked after financially. Insurance enables. Throughout these meditations, I have occasionally mentioned Niall Ferguson's book, The ascent of money. And when I first read it, the thing that struck me most was something that he said early on. He pointed out that poverty is not caused by the existence of financial instruments, but by their absence. The absence of insurance means that a problem swiftly becomes a crisis and a crisis becomes terminal. The absence of insurance, therefore, creates restrictions and limitations on what we can do what we can imagine, and who we can be. So, yes, we do buy insurance to be shielded from worry and fear, but insurance is not solely a defensive strategy. It is also an offensive one. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, who held office for 12 years from 1933 to 1945, so longer than any other president, once said, True individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. We buy insurance because it provides us with that economic security and that independence. We buy insurance so that we can live the lives we want to lead and be the people we want to be. Freedom is our hope for insurance. Chapter 7. Fungi. A metaphor for insurance. Yep, you heard that correctly. Our sixth and final F word is fungi, or fungi, as our American listeners may pronounce it. Or one can even say funguses, because that too is a legitimate plural for fungus. So, mushrooms and toadstools. Although, in reality, neither mushrooms nor toadstools because they are just the temporary fruiting bodies. They are the tiny visible tip of an almost infinite invisible system of fungal strands beneath the soil. And it is this invisible system that I am more interested in, because this is the mycorrhizal system. And I believe that the mycorrhizal system is as good an analogy for insurers as you are ever going to get. Many analogies merely highlight what is obvious, but this one goes further than that. It doesn't just confirm our existing knowledge, it hints at new insights. So sit back and enjoy. The word mycorrhiza literally means fungus root. It is the network of fungal strands, or hyphae as they are known, that live in the soil, growing between plants and even growing within plants in an intimate symbiotic relationship. Imagine yourself standing in the middle of a wood. Beneath your feet in the soil, there will be tree roots reaching out. These are easy to visualize. We've all seen tree roots, but but now go one stage further. Thinner than even the thinnest tree root are the tiny mycorrhizal threads crisscrossing in every conceivable direction, connected in a vast subterranean web with the roots of the trees, with the roots of the plants and with each other. Globally, the mycorrhizal strands in just the top 10 centimetres of soil, if laid end-to-end, would extend to around 4.5 metres times by 10 to the power of 17. That's about half the width of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Plants and mycorrhizal fungi coexist to such an extent that they are now, in effect, one entity. As Merlin Sheldrake says in his magnificent book, Entangled Lives, plant shoots engage with the light and air, while the fungi and plant roots engage with the solid ground. The fungi absorb minerals from the soil and then share them with the plants. Mycorrhizal fungi, for example, can provide up to 80% of a plant's nitrogen and as much as 100% of its phosphorus. In return... The plants provide the fungi with sugars, with carbohydrates. And today, more than 90% of all plant species depend on mycorrhizal fungi. In every woodland, therefore, beneath our feet, there is an immense natural system of trade. Some plant roots even reward fungi with additional carbon if those fungi provide the plant with extra phosphorus. But this is just the beginning. Most plants can engage with many mycorrhizal partners and most mycorrhizal fungi can engage with many plants and other mycorrhizal fungi. As a consequence, in uncontaminated soil, there is a vast network of shared mycorrhizal networks, something that has been called the wood wide web. And this wood wide web is so much more than simply fungal mycorrhiza interacting with trees. It involves trees interacting with other trees. In 1997, a Canadian PhD student, Suzanne Simard, showed that birch trees passed carbon to nearby fir trees via a shared mycorrhizal network. And what's more, the birch trees passed more carbon to fir tree saplings that were growing in the shade and therefore did not have the benefit of so much sunlight. And we're not talking small amounts here. A study in 2016 found that 280 kilograms of carbon per hectare of forest is transferred. That's 4% of the total carbon pulled out of the atmosphere, enough carbon to heat an average home for a week. And this transfer of carbon fluctuates depending on the respective needs of the various trees. In the spring, for example, a deciduous birch tree, growing its leaves, may need more carbon than the nearby evergreen fir tree. As such, carbon would flow from the fir to the birch via the mycorrhizal system. But in the summer, the position may be reversed. The fir may need more carbon than the birch, in which case the carbon flows from the birch to the fir. And then in autumn, it might be reversed again. What seems to happen is that if a plant is generating a surplus of carbon... It is pooled in the mycorrhizal network and the carbon is then paid out to whichever plant needs the assistance most. The parallel with insurance is obvious. Insurance is also a pooled system in which every insured pays but which only pays out to those insureds most in need. In a mycorrhizal system, it is nutrients that are moved around. In an insurance system, it's money. But there's more. In both the insurance and the mycorrhizal worlds, the efficiency of the system is achieved through a mixture of competition and cooperation. Yes, every species of tree and every species of fungus is seeking its own survival. But this is not nature red in tooth and claw. This is a system whereby the survival of one is achieved through the survival of all. In one forest in Canada, Kevin Byler, a mycology student, that's a student of mushrooms, studied how the trees were connected via the mycorrhizal system. He looked at a 30 metre by 30 metre plot and he concluded that the most well-connected tree was linked to 47 other trees within the research plot. And if you go beyond the research plot, it was probably connected to around 250 trees in total. It is a cliché to say that we are all six steps removed from every other human on the planet. Well. The same is true in a forest. Through the mycorrhizal network, every tree in a forest is only a handful of steps removed from every other tree. These trees are in competition, as are the many species of fungus, but they are also collaborating. And even that does not adequately express the complexity of what is going on in a woodland. As Byler says, I only looked at one species of tree and two species of fungus. Everything I described is a gross underestimate of the actual connectivity in the forest. So, if we look at a forest, what do we see? We see countless trees. But no one tree could survive on its own. Its roots are incapable of absorbing enough water or nutrients. These trees can only survive because they are symbiotically integrated with this huge mycorrhizal system, formed of countless species of fungi, all competing and cooperating at the same time. This system consists of a huge pool of surplus carbon, water, chemicals, nitrogen, phosphorus and more. And from this pool, those trees in need can draw assistance. I hope you can now see why I think that this is a wonderful metaphor for insurance. Because if we look at a city, a society, a world, what do we see? We see... Countless buildings, businesses, and people, we see the visible world. But beneath this visible world, what is there? There is insurance. Because just like the mycorrhizal system, insurance is also a system largely kept from sight, hidden beneath the surface of the real world. A system in which insurers exist symbiotically with insureds, where neither insured nor insurer could exist without the other, and where insurers compete yet collaborate through coinsurance, subscription markets, through leaders and followers, through excess layers, through reinsurance and retrocession, adding layer upon layer of complexity and ever greater levels of collaboration. Each insured is never more than six steps removed from any other insured through the entangled network of insurance that enables the visible world to live through a system that I have called the beneficial selfishness of strangers, a system that benefits all. Both insureds and insurers are made stronger, are made more resistant to the fragility and fear of our everyday lives, and are made more resilient in the face of an uncertain future. Insurance truly is a remarkable thing. Chapter 8. A Final Philosophical Flourish The title of this seventh meditation is Towards a Philosophy of Insurance. And, rather belatedly, it may be worth examining whether there is even such a thing as a philosophy of insurance. Well, the truth is that you can have a philosophy of just about anything. I've already mentioned Willem Flusser's book on the philosophy of photography – and throughout this meditation, I have quoted from Lars Svensson's book, A Philosophy of Fear. And Svensson has also written books on the philosophy of boredom and of fashion. And more than that, Wikipedia has individual pages on the philosophy of science, of technology, of information, and of computer science, all of which exist as recognised subsets of philosophy. According to Wilfred Sellers, philosophy is the attempt to understand how things, in the broadest possible sense of the term, hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. And if we've learned anything in the last seven meditations, it is that insurance is a means by which things, in the broadest sense of that term, hang together in the broadest sense of that term. So yes, you can definitely have a philosophy of insurance. It's just that it doesn't seem to exist yet. According to Peter Worley of the Philosophy Foundation, philosophy is a way of thinking that aims to deepen our understanding of the world and our experience within the world. It is an attempt to wrestle with the meaning of things. Worley argues that there are four stages to the philosophical process: responsiveness, reflection, reason, and reevaluation. So the starting point is responsiveness. Philosophy begins with puzzlement. So let's begin with a puzzle in the form of a question. What is insurance? The second stage is to reflect on that question. And my hope is that we've done that throughout this series of meditations, coming at that question from numerous angles. Insurance is a response to fear. Insurance is an irreligious faith. Insurance is an unmoved mover. Insurance is a way of understanding life forwards. Insurance is the matrix. Insurance is the mycorrhizal system. And we then apply reason to these reflections, and we create from them a framework for philosophical thought. And for me, this framework is formed around those five F-words. Fragility, fear, future, faith, and ultimately freedom. Because all of these are abstract concepts, but when combined they hopefully begin to hint at a concrete answer to the question, what is insurance? And then there is the final R, reevaluate, Because philosophy occurs in the exchange, in the conversation. Socrates believed that true philosophy could not be written down, it could not be achieved in writing. Philosophy can only exist in the conversation, which is unfortunate really, because a podcast is not a great place for a conversation. So Unless you want a debate on LinkedIn, and I am very happy to do that, maybe the re-evaluative stage will have to wait. In its place, therefore, let us ask the question, why? Why does any of this matter? Why waste time formulating a philosophy of insurance? Well, I can think immediately of two answers. One is to do with ethics. If we cannot answer the question, what is insurance?, how can we begin to contemplate the practical questions, what should insurance be and what should insurance do? And these are the questions that I will try to answer in the eighth and final meditation. But the other answer is to do with truth and self-awareness. Because insurance is just a social construct. Unlike the mycorrhizal system, it does not exist in the real world. It cannot be examined under the microscope nor explained in scientific terms. It exists solely within our minds. It is thoroughly human. We created insurance, and in return for nearly 4,000 years, insurance has moulded us. The philosophy of insurance matters, therefore, because insurance is a mirror in which we see our own fragility, our fears, our future, our faith and our freedom. If we choose to look into the face of insurance, we see ourselves. In some small way, therefore, to answer the question, what is insurance, is to answer the more urgent question, what does it mean to be human? And that is why we need a philosophy of insurance. Thank you for listening to this seventh meditation. In the final meditation, entitled... The Unexpected Triumph of Morality. We look to the future, and I consider whether insurance is actually helping to create the world that we want, or whether the freedom created by insurance may ultimately prove to be self-destructive. Can society be trusted with the freedom that is offered by insurance? Or will insurers have to start making moral decisions, limiting freedom to some and not to others? In short, we discuss the ethics of insurance. Here's an extract to whet your appetite. In recent years, ESG has experienced a stunning rise up the list of priorities for corporate boards around the world. And I think that this sudden and surprising development has a lot to teach us about what we can expect to see in insurance in the next few decades. So to understand it, let's first step back in time to the 1960s and walk through a panelled oak door into a room at the Chicago School of Economics. There, seated in a functional leather-backed chair, is a bespectacled man with a kind face, a grandfatherly figure. He is the world-famous economist, Milton Friedman. I hope you'll join us on Thursday for the next and final meditation on insurance and society. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.